Hi all, and a very warm welcome to Saturday 16th, June 2020. Today I was very pleased to have on a very special guest, John Bradshaw. John is a biodynamic farmer and has been involved in the biodynamic scene for some time. Many will be interested to learn that Australia has in fact been at the forefront of this movement. And uh, as we go into, this makes total sense. The soil here and the rainfall here is, is pretty uh, cyclical and usually substandard as many of the residents here would know. So farmers uh, need to be reactive and flexible in their ability to sense the land and how to best utilize it for whatever purpose that they have. Uh, and this is something we'll go into further. John was a wonderfully knowledgeable guest and he went into such things as Rudolf Steiner, soil, which I've been rabbiting on about as one of the prime issues facing humanity right now. Uh, anecdotal and scientific evidence for the veracity of biodynamic farming and much more. You can find more from John and various organizations that he's involved in um, and I'll place the links in the description but I would recommend the Biodynamic Growing Magazine, which is at www.bdgrowing.com and the Biodynamic Marketing Company, which is www.biodynamic.com.au. They are great starting points. I hope to have John on to answer some further listeners' questions, as I understand many of you are into gardening and experimenting and growing your own, so to speak. In the meantime, I suggest you go take a look at those links. I purchased a ton of the material, and I can say that it's all fascinating stuff. The magazines are great, uh, very insightful, and for those who are a little bit more serious, you can go and take a look at the lectures of Alex Podolinsky, of which there are many different publications. So hoping amongst the madness all around us right now, you can enjoy this one and try to get back to reality in just about the most important way that we can. And that, of course, is through our interaction with our food and environment. So wishing you all the best for the next week and hope you enjoy this one. Thank you. Um, so, John, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure, Alex. Good to be here. So uh, I just want to start off on a high level, if we could. Um, I want to know, uh, how did you come to farming and um, have you always been in it? Oh, going back till probably my early teens, I, I realised I wanted to work with nature in some way and gradually that came to my mind to be farming. But it took me a long time. Uh, I got married quite young. I had four children, um, had no money, which is a, <clears throat> a bit of an issue if you want to be a farmer. So I did many other jobs for many years before I actually got to full-time professional farming. Um, but I was lucky when I was 21, 22. I met <clears throat> a biodynamic dairy farmer close to Melbourne who agreed to train me one day a week, I went every Sunday, and he taught me a lot about biodynamic dairy farming and dairy and farming in general, I guess. And from then on, um, whatever job I was doing, I always found time to do a bit of relief milking or uh, tractor driving or whatever, just to build my skills. So from there, uh, I'm guessing you started your own farm from that uh, place of, of helping out with dairy and and learning things like that. How did you end up getting getting your own farm going and and, um, and what was the process to get there? Uh, well, fairly impulsive, really. It was really too late to go farming by the time we did it. Um, I was probably close to 60 by that time, um, but we had the money and we had the impulse, so we went and bought a small property in South Gippsland on the Tarwin River. It was only about 27 acres, but was beautiful deep soil and very suited to, to whatever we wanted to do. It, it also had a disused dairy, which was of interest to us. Well, it's actually not a disused dairy. It was a fully functioning dairy that had been cut off from a bigger farm. And what, what was, sorry to interrupt, what, what was the nature of the farm? Was it, um, you know, what were you doing on the land? Well, we initially started milking 
uh, for cows and running free-range hens for eggs. Um, of course, we started applying biodynamic methods as soon as we could. The first spring, we started spraying 500. And um, that went really well for a while, but then I injured a back. I, I made a back injury that I'd had for many years worse. We had to stop for a while. By the time I recovered, we decided we would just run beef cattle and grow vegetables. And um, how long were you doing that for? Was that some, a couple of decades or...? No, the body was not up to it, I'm afraid. We lasted six years full-time professional farming and, and that's about all we could do, really. We, we just ran ourselves into the ground in the end. But we had a good time and learnt a lot and put into practice everything I'd learnt over the you know, intervening decades. Sure, absolutely. It, it seems like a young man's game. But if you're young, you can develop quite a bit of that in practice. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> it's an interesting summary. Um, for myself, I actually came across biodynamic farming while investigating my own health um, and particularly the foods that I was choosing. And when I was looking into the, the health elements um, that we all face these days, I, I noticed um, that all these kinds of things were interrelated in some way, that um, the quality of our food is, is critical to our health and the way that our food is grown is also kind of critical. In modern agriculture, I think we see food of quite a poor nature a lot of the time. And from what I've seen and the limited produce I've been able to get my hands on, I've been very impressed with the biodynamic quality, the quality of produce. Um, I'd like to start talking about some of the differences between biodynamic farming and modern agriculture and what some of those differences are. Oh, well, I guess you can go back in history and look at the fact that all farming was organic. We've been farming for probably around 10,000 years only in the whole history of Earth and humanity only about 10,000 years was farming. And it was only in the middle of the 19th century that it was discovered that plants can only absorb nutrients in solution. Um, now, that was only part of the story, though. Unfortunately, there's money to be made by manufacturing water-soluble fertilisers and, and industry took off um, and started pushing water-soluble fertilisers. And that's where agriculture really went off the rails. It's, it's totally unnatural in nature, plants feed from soil humus, whereas the soil water is almost pure. So we actually have two sets of roots. One is the thicker, more vertical water uptake roots, which should be able to access pure water. And the other set are the very fine white hair feeder roots, which when the sun shines and it's warm, tells the plant to feed. And those feeder roots take uh, nutrients from humus colloids in the soil. Now with conventional agriculture, just as we have to breathe constantly, plants have to take up water to replace what's lost uh, in transpiration, water evaporated from the leaves. Therefore, because the water-soluble fertilisers are spread through the soil water, the plant is forced to feed continuously, no matter what the sun's telling it. And that's where you get mineral salts building up in the plant cells that the plant can't metabolise and build into high-quality protein, minerals and so on, uh, uh, vitamins. And that when you have a plant that's effectively functioning outside nature, it's more interesting to pests and diseases. And then you have to start spraying chemicals, poisonous chemicals, to keep the plant alive, basically. Totally unnatural. Sure. It sounds almost kind of like a vegetable foie gras or something you're just kind of force feeding this this plant yeah and and that affects not only vitamin and mineral content it affects the flavor it affects the keeping quality it affects farm animals that are eating grass or, or whatever wheat makes them sick and if we eat those plants and, and animal products we'll get sick too sure makes sense um, it, it's kind of interesting. I was I was reading a book by a guy called Richard Perkins the other day, who's a regenerative uh, farmer. He's not strictly biodynamic, I don't think, but um, he released a, a really good book on on regenerative agriculture. And what, one way he described uh, agricultural systems is that he said that they're prone to exponential decay 
or exponential regeneration. And it seemed like a good way to summarize kind of what you're saying. It's, it's almost like um, by using fertilizers and, and force feeding plants, it, in some sense, you are encouraging a kind of feedback loop that is exponentially decaying in some sense. Is that a, a good way to look at it, do you think? That's, I've never heard that before, but that's a very good characterization, I think. Um, the, probably the best soils on earth were in the Ukraine. Somebody, a scientist, measured how much uh, the level of the soil had gone down since the introduction of artificial fertilisers and modern farming. It was, I think, around a metre. Wow. Now, that's the loss of huge amounts of air. Air is probably the most important element of soil. You have to have a lot of air pockets in soil. It has to be well-structured. So, you know, modern conventional farming had reduced the Ukraine soils by one metre. Um, mm-hmm. It's still very good soil, but it has lost a lot. And uh, so have soils all over the world. Now, um, if we talk about greenhouse gases, conventional farming is one of the main reasons there are so many greenhouse, so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, organic matter in the soil holds carbon dioxide. And if you build organic matter in the soil, it locks up carbon dioxide. Conversely, if you reduce the amount of organic matter, you release carbon dioxide. Now, Alex Podolinsky on his farm at Powelltown, in the first six years of biodynamics, locked up, I think it was around 250 tonnes of carbon dioxide per acre over that Mm -hmm. six-year period. That was calculated by Victorian Agriculture Department scientists because Initially, his soil was a worked-out potato farm on fairly sandy soil. It had less than 1% organic matter in the top 100 millimetres. After six years, it had 11.4% organic matter in the top 100 millimetres. And also, even down to a metre, there was 2.4%, whereas it had been zero when he started. Mm. And on that basis, they worked out how much carbon dioxide his soil had locked up over that only six-year period. Absolutely amazing. So in, in terms of farming systems, six years is nothing. My understanding, these things take quite some time in a lot of cases. The changes that have occurred within a year or two would not happen in nature in 10,000 years. Sure. So I, I guess um, this is a good time to maybe talk about biodynamic farming and, and what it is exactly. What, what's a good definition uh, for people? Well, everybody knows, I guess, what organic farming is, that uh, organic farmers don't use artificial water-soluble fertilisers or, you know, chemical sprays. It's basically focused on building humus levels and soil structure and feeding the plants from soil humus. Now, biodynamics is, of course, part of that. It's an organic system. In fact, it was the first modern organic system. It was introduced in 1924 by Rudolf Steiner, Um, The modern organic movement only really started in 1940 through a book written by Lord Northbourne. Now, interestingly, Mm -hmm. he got a lot of his inspiration and ideas from Rudolf Steiner's work on biodynamics. Over and above organic farming, what biodynamics has is a set of very powerfully acting what we call preparations, which was originally suggested by Steiner and tested by scientists in the years after. Seven of those preparations are particularly relevant for soil development and one of those preparations gives us the power to influence light metabolism in the, in the plant, which is absolutely unique. There's nothing else that I know of that can do that. So just to, to explain what that means, if you've got a, a wet spring, for instance, your plants, even, even fed properly biodynamically, uh, your plants are a bit watery. They become a bit more prone to um, pests and diseases. You might get aphids on your roses, for instance. So you recognise that there's excess wateriness or even long periods of not enough light. You can spray what we call 501, which is made from quartz crystals, very finely ground and, and put through a special treatment. <laughs> we spray that so that it comes down as a fine mist over the leaves, that actually makes it more like a sunny autumn instead of a wet spring. And the plants, within a day or two, are more upright, their sugar content increases, the flavour increases, and there's no chance of it really being attacked by any diseases or pests. So that's a a unique um, influence that we can have. But the, the soil preparations 
starting with the main one, which is 500, which probably most people know is made by putting cow manure in cow horns and burying it over the winter autumn winter period mm-hmm. and it transforms into a beautiful microbial rich uh, colloidal humus which we then liquefy stir spray on on soils when they're warm and it has a dramatic effect on on uh, the level of microbes aerobic microbes um, root growth and humus formation so all those add up to a beautiful soil structuring preparation. That's it's very interesting. So it sounds like to me the difference between these two things lies mainly in the preparations that you use. There's a whole farming method which Steiner had nothing to do with the develop, development of. It was mainly done by Alex Podolinski here in Australia. You needed a whole sustainable agricultural method to go with the preparations and support their activity. Sure. Um, so things like cultivation are, are generally much more carefully thought about and done on biodynamic farms than even on organic farms. We also use uh, moon planting to a certain extent, although on big farms obviously it's not so practical because you have to plant a 1,000 acres of wheat in a week. Okay, what, what is moon farming? Steiner wanted his suggestions to be thoroughly tested scientifically. Dr. Ehrenfried Pfeiffer was one of the main researchers. He first of all verified that the preparations did work Uh, and secondly worked out how much to use and exactly how to apply them, well, the exact method of making them as well. And the other main researchers were Lily Kalisko and her husband, Eugen Kalisko. Lily spent 30 years herself studying and and testing. One of the things they tested was the old uh, traditional belief, that, uh, particularly from China, that you should sow seeds two days before full moon. They compared sowing two days before full moon with two days before new moon and found dramatically improved results on the the two days before full moon. Um, Years later, uh, another researcher looked at whether there was a possible influence from the zodiac signs that were in the background behind the moon at the time. And she found, uh, that was Maria Tun, Mm -hmm. she found that that the the, the zodiac signs could be grouped into four groups, three signs each. One group, if you sow during that period, would make the plant grow more root. One would make it grow more leaf. One would make it grow more flower. And one would make it grow more fruit. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you want a pumpkin crop, you would plant it on a fruit time. And, and they've done research that's backed that up. There's still a lot of research needed, but that's mm-hmm. essentially the moon and zodiac influence. So what's your own experience with that? Do you find it to be effective? And when we were commercial market gardening, uh, of course, it was quite difficult because you have to sow things regularly and it, it doesn't always work out. So all I would do is try to avoid the last quarter of the moon. Um, many times I've, I've noticed an effect, uh, but I've never done any actual controlled trials to prove it to myself. Just curious, one thing I've noticed is there's a Demeter worldwide group and brand, and I've noticed some other products that are just biodynamic. What is the difference between these two things? Because my understanding is that there is quite a big difference. In Australia, there is. Demeter, it's a little bit confusing because Demeter is the international brand of biodynamic produce in general. In Australia, control of the Demeter trademark was got by Alex Podolinski for the Biodynamic Research Institute at Powelltown, which is the research institute he set up. But under the National Standard for Organic and Biodynamic Produce, you can be certified biodynamic by any one of six or seven different certifying bodies. The only one that offers the Demeter logo and the Demeter brand is uh, the Biodynamic Research Institute. Now, from our experience, yes, there are different streams of biodynamics. The development that Alex Podolinski led in Australia from about 1952 until he died last year, 2019, he was still active until then, that development led the world in biodynamics. In fact, the early 1980s, we had over a million acres of of professional farms operating biodynamically. That was over 95% of world total. There are other, other people in Australia doing different biodynamic methods. Uh, I don't want to say too much about that, but 
some of the things that were done, for instance, in Europe were not very successful. And so in the early 90s, uh, 1990s, Alex was asked to go and teach farmers in Europe because they felt they weren't getting the same effect that we were getting. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when he started going, he couldn't see the soil development happening on so-called biodynamic farms. And it was quite clear to him, in many cases, they weren't making preparations properly. They were ignoring a lot of the major developments that had come about in the 50 or so years that he'd been operating in Australia. And in fact, in, I think it was the early 90s, might have been the late 90s, there was the Demeter International Conference held in Europe that Alex attended where the Dutch Biodynamic Association wanted to pass a motion that you shouldn't have to use biodynamic preparations anymore because everyone recognised they didn't work in Europe because of the pollution. Now, unfortunately for them, Alex took the the whole conference to a, a vast Italian market garden operating under the Australian, what we call the Australian Demeter Biodynamic Method, uh, a, a place south of Rome called Agrilatina. They had a 150-acre market garden, including about 30 acres under glass. They had had enormous success using the Australian method. When the Dutch and everyone else saw what was happening, they realised that there was something wrong with their method uh, mm-hmm. rather than the pollution of Europe. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I guess it would make sense in a way that Australia could set a standard with that since our soil is, well, in general, so terrible. Um, so it sounds like a lot of the good work was kind of done here. Actually, farming in Australia is is more difficult than most continents. We have the oldest, most degraded soils in general, Mm -hmm. and we don't offer any subsidies to farmers as they do in Europe and America and other places. Not even um, large scale? Um, The farmers are really on their own, and the climate here is much, much more harsh than, say, in Europe, where if you get two or three weeks without rain, it's a drought. So it's much harder to to be successful here. That makes the farmers very creative and resourceful, and that's one of the things that really made it work here. It wasn't just Alex's work. It was uh, working in cooperation with the farmers who had a a large input in the development. Yeah, okay, it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, I I just wanted to quickly go back to Rudolf Steiner. He's an interesting guy. He's someone who I came across... um, numerous times over the years, but I'd, I'd never really looked into too deeply. Um, I mainly came across him with looking into kind of esoteric subjects or anthroposophy, you know, things like that. Um, on investigation, he seems like a, a fascinating character. He's um, one of these kind of 20th century polymaths, geniuses, I guess. And when you look at his CV, he's done a lot of stuff. So obviously you have the esoteric angle, then you have the agricultural angle, which is what we're talking about right now. Uh, he was heavily influenced apparently by Goethe and Arthur Schopenhauer. He's, he's just one of these really, uh, I guess, mysterious kind of guys. Does Steiner still influence you in the way that or influence the movement, perhaps, in biodynamic farming? Is How has he influenced you and in, in your, your own ventures? He was a very remarkable character, definitely. Yes, he still influences me. Uh, I wouldn't say he has any, any influence on the biodynamic development any longer. What he gave in his eight agricultural lectures in 1924 was amazing that anyone could come up with a suggestion like putting cow manure in a cow horn and burying it and then using that to bring about increases in fertility in the soil naturally um, was pretty remarkable and there were a total of eight preparations of that nature. One of the things that really impresses me though is that it actually works. There's plenty of people with with weird ideas but they don't all work. Now Yes, he was in, he was involved in education. Most people have heard of Steiner schools. My daughter sure. went to one for a couple of years before we moved to the country, my first mm-hmm. daughter, my youngest daughter. Um, and I'm very impressed with with Steiner schools and how they how they work with children. but he was he was lecturing at the same time he was giving the agricultural lectures. At night, he was traveling to another city and lecturing medical doctors. 
So he had a big influence in many, many spheres. He was an architect, a sculptor. He, he spoke on, on reform of society. He had a lot of very interesting ideas there. Yeah, just about any, any sphere you look at, he was involved in. But as far as the farming goes, he gave the initial impetus, but it was up to later development of the actual method, and that was mainly through Alex Podolinsky's work in Australia. Sure. Do, do you know how Steiner came up with it? Was he following esoteric principles or did he experiment himself? Do you, do you have any idea on how he managed? He said that he was clairvoyant, and if you read any of Steiner's works, um, they're very spiritual in nature. He, he did a lot on, on religion. He... he some books he wrote, and many of the books that you can get on uh, by Steiner are actually transcripts of lecture series he gave. He gave thousands and thousands of lectures. Many of those were on, on religion. Uh, he respected all religions. Um, he particularly wrote a lot about the Christian religion, but he, he had deep respect for all religions and the truths that they all contain. I guess then um, probably more relevant to our discussion, and you've mentioned his name a couple of times, is Alex Podolinsky. Um, as you know, I, I got a bunch of books uh, from your organization, magazines, and, and several of Alex's uh, lectures. There are really fascinating reads. I must admit, I, I'm not a farmer, so a lot of the stuff kind of goes over my head a little bit. But um, nevertheless, they're, they're fascinating. Alex seems to be the one who, uh, from what you're saying, influenced everything greatly. In one of his books, uh, sorry, lectures recently, uh, Ad Humanitatum, um, I was affected by one of his quotes in particular. And I'll, I'll just read this out quickly if you don't mind. Quote, so the theme of, at least... The first part of this lecture concerns itself with having farmers in the future with the ability to holistically overview, and uh, he, he put that last word, overview, in bold, overview the constantly changing living entity, go, uh, to go to a biodynamic farm in an ever-altering nature and to make appropriate decisions unendingly. A farm is not a production unit with windows instead of real fields. No computer can run the farm. However, much of this is induced by modernism. I thought that was a, a great summary. But um, would you like to talk about Alex and his influence on, on things a little bit more than I suppose you already have? Um, at his funeral last year, one of his sons spoke and said, imagine how difficult it would have been lecturing to farmers and telling them that they should put cow manure in cow horns and bury it and then use that substance to improve their soils. It was unheard of, really. Um, Alex had the capacity, though, to convince other farmers, mainly, though, through his, his own farming. And, and the farm I spoke about earlier at Powelltown that he took over when it was in a terrible state, it, he was soon topping state butterfat averages with his dairy herd. He came to the attention of the agriculture department very early on. They characterised biodynamics as muck and magic, which was completely unscientific and emotional statement. They felt a bit threatened, I think. Farmers would go and visit Alex because they didn't believe uh, the cows would have enough grass. He was strip grazing. He was moving the cows constantly onto fresh grass. This is now the, the latest buzzword, cell grazing. Alex was doing that in, in the early 50s when the agriculture department was using set stocking where you just put the cows in one paddock or the sheep. He developed things like deep ripping to, to relieve compaction in subsoils, which is, is widely used worldwide. Nobody knows it was Alex who did it first. So rotational grazing, the use of the preparations. He developed a new preparation that allowed all the six compost preparations to be put on the soil along with the 500, which was a, a new development. And one of the things that the Europeans said was because Steiner said you couldn't, you had to do the stirring by hand. When you spray 500 on the soil, you have to stir it in such a way that you get a deep vortex. And when you get a deep vortex, you have to go the other way and make a chaos, a bubbling chaos, and create another vortex and keep going like that for one hour to 
Well, one of the, the things that happens there is it greatly oxygenates the water that's got the 500 microbes in it before you mm -hmm. spray it on the soil. Now, Steiner was originally asked uh, in 1924, could we use machinery to do that? And he said no. However, he was talking about large estates in Europe that had huge workforces before tractors or anything else. Everything was done by hand or with horses or cows pulling plows. So it, it simply wasn't practical. Alex realised if biodynamics was going to spread widely, they had to have a machine that, that uh, replicated the qualities of hand stirring and... One of the early farmers developed one of those machines that's still used worldwide. Developments like that were very important and enabled it to go to the extent it did in Australia. So the whole method really was developed by Alex with the assistance of the, the Australian farmers. Sure. And has anyone taken the mantle since his passing? I mean, is it, uh, is it developing? Oh, development's ongoing. I mean... One thing about the Australian Demeter biodynamic method is we're very strict on the basics. You have to make 500 correctly, and that is a very difficult thing to do. You have to do it where there's a cold winter climate, not a warm winter climate. There are so many things involved. Once you've got your 500, you have to store it very carefully so it stays in a very soft, moist, colloidal state until you use it. Um, it's just a waste of time if you don't do things correctly. We know that we have to use it at the rate of one and a quarter ounces per acre in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, though, the individual farmer or gardener is trained to be very observant. I think you were referring to that before in your quote from Ad Humanitatum. You have to be very observant and you can make new discoveries yourself, but you don't just do it oh, I feel like putting on three ounces to the acre. I think that must be right. You, you have to stick with the basics that have been scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, you can make new discoveries. So the method is developing progressively. Now, one of the things that Alex did was come up with a, a method of viewing for anyone, for farmers, for artists, for anyone who wants to view actively. And he called it active perception. Now, a good farmer, even if they're not aware of it, will look out over nature very caringly and concentratedly and will understand what's happening in their farm environment and in the nature environment without it even necessarily coming into their consciousness. But they'll be able to make decisions based on that, which are much, as you said, are much more true than any computer or farm advisor could come up with. When we watch... TV, movies, um, games on computers, mobile phones and so on, we're actually damaging our, our ability to view actively. And it's so important to, to preserve that capacity. It seems to be a general problem in many ways. But one way I thought was interesting in one of his books, he refers to it as sensing. And you can see this in a lot of things, like meditation is effectively sensing. I th thought that was very interesting. The same thing as you say, that active perception of, of the land and, and what's going on in it. It's something that, that's been probably was, was stronger in the past and, and has got less and less over time. But, you know, people living with nature closely who aren't ruining their sight with, with too much electronic stuff still have that ability. You know, the Aborigines living close to nature, their tracking ability is, is renowned. It's just incredible what they could mm -hmm. pick up that no white person could pick up yeah. um, and so on. People can listen to the bird song and, and get a feeling for what's happening in the environment, for instance. It kind of brings me to my next point a little bit. I actually have a, a family member who's involved in permaculture and I, I have had a little bit of exposure to it over the years. What I noticed is in, in many of these places, um, there seems to be a, a kind of obsession in a way with abstract theories and idealisms and things like that, which I, I think there's a fine line with these kinds of things because it can kind of be counterproductive. I think being active is probably the most important thing with anything in this world. And in that respect, I, a lot of movements... Uh, can be prone to stultification and uh, maybe not getting the results that it originally intended. 
And certainly that's the case with his area. And in that sense, um, in biodynamics, what, what kind of scientific evidence is there? What, what kind of results are we seeing as a result of this method? And you've spoken to this a little bit, but I'm just wondering in terms of yield and, and things like that, is, is there good evidence for the veracity of uh, biodynamic farming? Well, you can start right back from Rudolf Steiner when he insisted that all his weird suggestions be fully tested before they were put into use. And uh, they were established, as I said, in the case of Lily Kalisko, over a 30-year period of, of intense scientific research. But in Australia particularly, there's been, there have been quite a few studies done. In the, when was it, I think the 1990s, the Victorian Dairy Industry Authority and the Victorian Agriculture Department were involved in a, a detailed study of 10 biodynamic dairy farms in the Goulburn Valley compared with their conventional neighbours. So they were matched pairs. And the results came out very well for biodynamics. Better soil structure on biodynamic farms. The pasture composition was similar, which a lot of people might not understand that. But if you've got a good pasture composition, some people would say if you're not using fertiliser, it'll revert to poor species and so on. They had similar pastures. Better cow health on the biodynamic farms. They weren't using any fertiliser at that stage, not at all. Their production was slightly higher on the conventional farms, but they were feeding 600% more grain, which is one of the big reasons. They, the biodynamic cows would continue milking for six or seven years longer than a conventional cow. The runoff, the nutrient runoff from the conventional farms was up to 30 times higher. Now, we all know about blue-green algae in rivers uh, that's what happens when you put artificial fertilisers on. Well, 30 times less from the biodynamic farms. Those were some of the results. Now, Dr John MacDonald, the Victorian Agriculture Department vet who was in charge of the animal studies, said to me how important was the fact that the biodynamic cows had much higher selenium levels and that would translate into the milk as well. Now, selenium is very important for fertility well, in, in all Western countries, fertility is declining. Conventional farmers have a lot of trouble with not being able to get cows in calf. The biodynamic farmers were not having any trouble. Other studies have shown that the soil takes in much more water much more quickly when it rains, and it holds that water. That's because we've got much higher humus levels, and colloidal humus holds up to 70% of its volume in water. Now, we all know... Flooding is a huge problem worldwide. Um, one of the big reasons is that conventional farming has packed those soils down so tight, um, really reduced their organic matter levels so the water can't go in and it can't be held. So it just runs off and we get these huge floods. On biodynamic farms, if it rains, they suck that water in and they hold it. There was one farm in the Goulburn Valley that couldn't get the irrigation water in. They had just slime on top. They tried everything that the Ag Department recommended with no success. After 25 years of biodynamics, they had turned what was effectively two inches of topsoil into 30 inches of topsoil. Now, underneath that two inches, they had heavy clay. That heavy clay, over, well, I think it was 30 years actually of biodynamics, turned into friable soil. The soil held wow. 10 times as much carbon as before. Now, that again is, is carbon dioxide being held. When they were conventional, they had to irrigate every seven days and the water just wouldn't go in properly. Mm. Under biodynamics, the water all went in and they only had to irrigate every 30 days. Okay. They have a 99% pregnancy success rate. They used to have 50 difficult calvings a year. Uh, under biodynamics, they only have 10 calving problems a year and they only call the vet once or twice a year, whereas before it was 25 or 30 times. These are just some, I mean, there's so much research in Australia in particular yeah. in support of biodynamic. Now, one of the, the things I should mention on a huge, or this, is, this has been replicated on a few farms, on a huge farm in Western Australia, 4,800 acres, they had real problems with salinity. They had big areas that just had crustings of salt where nothing would grow. Which, uh, just sorry to interrupt, but for our overseas listeners, is a huge issue in Australia for obvious reasons. Yeah, when you, you clear land, I mean, originally they had to just cut every tree off because that was the government requirement when they were granting land to people. 
Um, that it had to be completely cleared. That was one of the big issues that caused salt that was under the soil in Australia because it used to be under the sea, a lot of mm -hmm. it, to rise. The other factor is soil compaction, which causes the salt to come up by capillary action. Now, after about five years of biodynamics, they began to notice the salt areas were receding. Um, eventually, they were completely rehabilitated. They were able to grow crops again and grass on those salted areas. Because they'd opened up the soil structure so much, the salt was able to gradually filter back down out of the root zone. That's wow. staggering. That was studied by the Western Australian Agriculture Department at one stage over a long period. So what do you think the reluctance is for the mainstream to embrace this if uh, you have results like this? Because, I mean, that's incredible. That's um, an incredible story. A lot of people, a lot of farmers are very proud of their, their style of agriculture. They don't know any other way. Some of them are scared because they're really hard-pressed financially and they don't want to take the risk. Mm. And, of course, you've got the agricultural industries, chemical manufacturers, fertiliser companies and so on who've got a real profit motive to continue pushing their products. It does take a bit of courage to, to make the change. And probably tying into that, you know, a lot of people need to make a livelihood. Is biodynamic farming profitable? Do the people that make these changes find that they're struggling or are they, do they find that they can make a good living out of this? Yes, look, generally that's very much the case, even if... Now, of course, if, if you've developed a market for your products like we were going to Melbourne farmers markets to sell our vegetables at very good prices. If you can find a good market for your product and you are certified biodynamic, and that the same applies to someone who's certified organic too, um, you can get much more for your product, even if you might be producing a bit less than someone who's flogging the farm with fertiliser. Um, but in general, most biodynamic farmers are still there after 30 or 40 years where they're conventional... Well, for instance, in that Western Australian example, that's on a 13-inch rainfall, the 4,800-acre farm. It's right near the rabbit-proof fence, which is the end of farming. Their experience was they, were, they weren't making a huge amount because it was a difficult, difficult climate, difficult soils. They were making a good living, basically, whereas a lot of their conventional neighbours were in, deeply in debt. Some had to walk away from their farms. It, it just wasn't economically viable anymore it's it it needs to be doesn't it for people to bother i mean if if you're if you've got a if you're a biodynamic dairy farmer and you're supplying the fresh milk market for instance you're getting very good money per litre much more than a conventional farmer so you don't need to produce so highly but mm. in many cases look in in um say grain and, and sheep areas grain and cattle areas the farmers are not only getting more money for their production, but they're actually producing more than the conventional farmers around them. Yeah, that's it's pretty incredible. And it, it sounds like it ties into the, the these feedback loops that you're setting up. If you work with the land rather than against it, the, the law of returns is going to be exponential, you would think. Especially when you've got, you know, the difficult conditions in Australia with the frequent droughts and so on. Farmers spend huge amounts of money preparing soils and planting, say, a wheat crop and, in the case of conventional farmers, spraying chemicals and so on to protect them. If they then don't get follow-up rains or enough rains, they can lose all that money. There have been many cases where you get some opening rains in, in say, late autumn in a district. All the farmers go out and plant a crop. It may be that they get no more rain. The conventional crop just dies off eventually, but mm. the biodynamic farmer will still get a crop because he's held all that opening rain in the soil, in the humus, and it will continue providing moisture for the crop. So this is, I could go through many, many comments. I've come, I've, I've visited hundreds of biodynamic farms over the years and seen for myself, but I've also come across comments by other people who visited the farms and they're quite remarkable. We haven't even talked about the environment apart from carbon dioxide. I just want to mention, we've talked about salinity, I guess, if you do get a, a drought and you've got, say, light sandy soils, you're in real danger of getting wind erosion. All your soil will blow away and that's why we get these huge dust storms in uh, Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Sydney, but we get huge dust storms during droughts in Melbourne. That's people's soil blowing away. It doesn't happen on the biodynamic farms. They've got so much more 
root growth in the soil. It holds the soil together. Now, as you increase the, the soil structure, you open up the soil structure and build the humus in the soil and the microbial activity and so on. Actually, the vein system that feeds rivers and streams extends a long way back, kilometres often from major rivers. Mm. That vein system would, when, when white settlers first came to Australia, for instance, a lot of the streams would run all year round. But after a few decades of farming, they, they would become annual streams that only run over winter. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been examples on large biodynamic farms where streams that have been annual for, say, 80 years have started running all year again because they, that wow. farmer has so much repaired that delicate vein system that it can slowly release water all year round and keep a stream flowing. That's interesting. I always just assumed that was a feature of the Aussie landscape, that those empty streams were, uh, you know, seasonal, not even annual in many cases. I just, they fill up every five years or something. Oh, in one case, a, a quite old man who'd been farming in the area all his life came to the neighbour and said, look, I don't know what you're doing. Something strange is happening. That, that stream hasn't flowed at this time of year for 80 years. So it's a healing of nature. Which is critical for their business models and also just for uh, the world in general, isn't it? I mean, I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, social problems and numerous things of that nature. As I looked into this more, we've spoken a bit about soil, but I, I really am starting to see soil retrogression and uh, degradation as probably one of the, the largest threats probably a species faces, actually. I was reading that in terms of soil loss, um, and, and this is from mainstream sources, it's not a conspiracy theory or anything like that, we're losing about 24 billion tonnes of fertile soil due to erosion, which apparently works out to about 3.4 tonnes uh, lost for every person on the planet per year. That's insane. Um, to me, that poses probably the most immediate threat I can think of to our species. It's, it's incredible that nothing is being done about it, I think, um, on, a, on a large scale. Yes, yes. It is a huge problem. And um, all I can say is there are solutions. Yeah. Biodynamics builds new soil. And so in, in other countries, is this catching on? I know you were mentioning China. I, I actually lived there for a couple of years. First of all, the scale of the place is enormous. And obviously, there's a lot of industrial pollution and a lot of desertification, I suppose, I've been reading. But you, but you were saying that they've actually kicked off of a biodynamic movement in China. Um, one of our Australian farmers, uh, he's a, quite a big market gardener, actually, Darren Aitken, has been going to China for, I, I don't know, maybe five years now, for a few months every year or a month or so. And uh, using our Australian methods, they're having wonderful results there. Um, they've actually formed their own biodynamic association in the context of the Pan-Asia Biodynamic Association, which Darren started, because he's not just working in China, but also uh, many other Asian countries. Um, yes, yeah, so look, the method works so well. Once people try it, they don't want to go back anymore. Sure. Um, the same happened in Europe with Alex going there for over 30 years. There are many hundreds of farmers there getting just as good results as we get in Australia. So, um, One of the things I wanted to talk about in particular with soil is I, I was reading a, a study from, I think it was uh, Germany or Switzerland, I forget, and it was in regards to vineyards. And what they noticed is with the plants themselves, they um, so within, within the plant itself, the fruit that it produces has a higher level of polyphenols, which um, I understand is being very critical to human health, uh, particularly with, uh, in the gut. It, it seems like the soil quality is, is uh, not only about retaining water and things like that, but it's also about the biome of the soil. And I've kind of got this theory going, which I don't think it's my theory specifically, but I've been doing a little bit of research on the terrestrial uh, biome um, and this meaning that within the soil, you have all kinds of microbes. And my, my general idea was that as mass agriculture takes hold, it's kind of creating a monophylic slant, meaning that there's, there's not a great variety 
of different soil bacteria effectively. And I think that this is kind of having an effect on, on the health of humans and animals since they're consuming these plants. And one thing I noticed in the study is they did measure the soil and it had a, a very high diversity of bacteria. And that seemed to create a higher level of polyphenols in the, the fruit of the plant, in this case a vineyard, which obviously just has health effects for those who are consuming it either in wine or just consuming the fruit itself. And you were talking a little bit about how these preparations affect the soil you know, microbiome, I suppose. Are you aware of any further tests on this? And, and what's your own experience with, with bacteria in soil uh, using this method? Well, I, I certainly haven't done any of my own tests. I'm, I'm not qualified to. <laughs> would be very interesting to measure your level of biological activity in the soil and the level of microbes and so on. But all I can say is we, we can see, uh, we could see over our six years on the farm, after two years of using what we call prepared 500, which is 500 with the six compost preparations twice a year, uh, we had a, a change in the colour of the soil and, and an improvement in the soil structure down to about 100 millimetres. And after five or six years, we had that down uh, probably 250 millimetres, beautiful structure and colour. Mm. And that all speaks to, yes, a very, very healthy uh, soil biology, definitely. That's, you know, where the soil structure comes from and the humus levels and so on. You would have to think rather like a human being, the diversity in our guts is critical it would work the same way, wouldn't you? Nature is organised to convert anything that had once lived, any organic matter, is attacked by a myriad of fungi, enzymes, microbes, macrofauna, microfauna. You look at it, it, it's all designed to reduce that to, or build it up to, if you want to look at it a better way, build it up into colloidal humus, which is... Uh, if you imagine what worm castings are, they're an example of colloidal humus. That's the whole organisation of nature. If you start putting water solubles on, you, you disrupt that process. There just aren't the need for the microbes and so on. They're, the plants are being force-fed and the whole soil biology declines. Now, I don't know how the soil biology would transfer into the plant. I don't think it does in that sense, but it does enable the plant to function at a very high level, it can obtain whatever it needs in the way of major elements and minor elements, trace elements. And because it's not being disturbed by cells being overblown by being packed with water-soluble salts, um, it can actually photosynthesize more effectively. It can build um, better and more balanced mineral content, vitamin content. You can measure that even. Um, one of the researchers, Steiner, gave ideas to used chromatography as a way of... Now, just to explain that, let's say you want to test um, some carrot juice. Um, Lily Calisco developed this method. You would put filter paper into the carrot juice and let it rise and then dry it. Then later you would put that filter paper into some a light-sensitive chemical like silver nitrate and let that rise mm. and then expose it to light. You would get a picture... Um, where you've got uh, something that's not very alive, you'll get a pretty boring picture. When you've got something that's abundantly alive, you'll get a beautiful, artistic, lively picture. Steiner suggested that this could be going towards a method of showing the life in things, the concept of um, life force in, in living things sure. was something he spoke about. Apart from any of those tests, the most important test is you eat the food and you see mm. what your body tells you. Now, any animal knows exactly what it wants to eat. If mm. a cow's a mother, the calf, uh, for instance, is scouring, it's, it's got diarrhoea, the mother will go and seek out herbs in the pasture or particular grasses to eat, which will medicate the calf. They, they are very sensitive they'll never eat the grass around their own manure because it's been pushed just like an artificial fertiliser. It's not healthy. 
what we eat in the supermarkets now is is very unhealthy food, and you can taste that. Uh, the yes. biodynamic food just tastes absolutely beautiful, and that's the main test: your own taste buds. Mm. Yeah, I mean the amount of time they keep food for is quite horrific in refrigeration and stuff like that. I, I was actually talking to a, an old old farmer, an older farmer who'd, who'd used a biodynamic method a little while ago, and he was saying that um, if if the pro, if the produce is not used immediately from a biodynamic farm, it has this uncanny ability to last for quite a long time. Absolutely, absolutely, that's very very common. Um, yeah. And certainly when we were growing the food, uh, I had a woman come to us one week at the market who said, oh, your food keeps so well. I've still got some of your coriander from last week or two weeks ago, she said. And I said, which market did you come to? And she said, this market, the same one. <laughs> and I said, well, that was four weeks ago. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and that was coriander, a bunch of coriander. Now, whether it's broccoli, whether it's apples, look, if you buy apples in the supermarket, a lot of the time they taste as though they're already starting to rot. I don't know how people eat that food constantly. No wonder children don't want to eat fruit or vegetables. It, yeah. it doesn't taste good, you know, and, and what's it going to do to your health if it doesn't taste good? Yeah, it's probably going to lack all the things we were just talking about, all the uh things that really benefit you from, from eating this food, like polyphenol contents and all these things. It's not only not got the nutritional content or the, or the, the vibrancy that really makes you healthy, but it, it's, it comes with a, a whole package of chemical residues. No matter mm -hmm. that the government periodically tests things and says they're all safe, all below certain limits, it's very unscientific. They... They're often withdrawing chemicals 30 years after they started using them because they now realise they're dangerous. Not to mention the huge amount of glyphosate in food nowadays, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, is terribly damaging to health. It's, it's, there's some evidence that it's behind the big increase in fatty liver disease, for instance, um, mm. not to mention non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but we still use it. Yeah, I think it's uh, one, probably one of the great crimes of the last hundred years, this obsession with poison that, that we have. It's uh, particularly with things like grains. Um, when you learn uh, all the different agents they use to keep grain in silos and, and how, you know, obviously that grain's then made into bread or other products, and all of a sudden everyone's getting celiac. Well, look, if I drink conventional milk for, you know, there have been times when I've had to when I'm overseas or traveling or whatever, if I drink conventional milk for a few weeks, I will get a serious chest infection. Mm -hmm. If Whereas I can drink biodynamic milk as much as I like every day and, and I'm fine. Um, I'm sure the same applies to people who have um, problems with wheat. Um, children who get ear infections and things, if the parents, or asthma, asthma is another one, if parents would try biodynamic milk, I think over a period of time they'd find much less health problems. Yeah, it was interesting when I was in Europe uh, a couple of years ago where they don't use these poisons, I later found out. Um, I didn't have any issues eating the bread there at all. Whereas when I eat it here, I don't feel good. You know, I have all sorts of reactions um, that I'd rather not talk about, but... Um, for sure, there's a difference, and for sure, I think a lot of these things can be traced to the chemicals that are that are put on these on these products. The the chemical industry has money to make, and and there's a lot of corruption of science. Absolutely. A lot of the chemicals yeah. that are developed are tested by the companies that develop them, and the same applies for uh, GM genetic modification. <laughs> Although we're now in the absurd position where. Our scientific position of our governments is, oh, the plants look the same, therefore they must be the same. So they don't actually test GM products. If they look the same or their basic chemical breakdown is the same, they must be okay, whereas they've got huge differences in, in the little bits of DNA and RNA that shouldn't be there that are floating around. And, and the amount of corruption in that industry is appalling. You have to say, in a, in a way, it's it's abnormal simply because they're, they're kind of stopping natural selection. They're, they're not allowing the plant to interact with the environment and to uh, reproduce naturally. So that, that never works out well. <laughs> 
And the only the only really detailed studies that were done, one of them was by our own CSIRO in Australia, who developed a, a new pea variety that was genetically modified, and they did test it very carefully with uh, laboratory rats and so on, and they found serious health problems and stopped researching it. Mm. Um, the the one years ago in Scotland where they were developing a, a potato that was genetically modified. Um, they found problems with that. The, the chief scientist was sacked and vilified. He was later vindicated, but the government just went for him mm. because uh, they didn't want to know. And, and so they, they don't test them anymore. The companies won't even let you have access to genetically modified soybeans or anything to test. Yeah, it seems like um, when such large amounts of money are involved, people can be really up against it. And, and particularly I've noticed in Australia, as you say, first of all, there's not a lot of support for farmers. But second of all, you have these these large lobby groups that are pushing an agenda. And in that respect, I, I, I've been looking to maybe relocate to a rural area um, and try some of these things out. But seems like there's a big uh, barrier to doing so in, in this country, at least. Are you seeing a young generation of farmers coming up or, or does it seem to be something that's not popular or, or declining? To the contrary, I, I meet a lot of young people who are, are really motivated to become biodynamic farmers or organic farmers in whatever mm. way they can. Um, I don't think there's any particular impediment to that from the government, as I think you were suggesting at some stage. People are free to do what they want, but the problem for young people is the amount of money that's required to start. It's it's yeah. quite horrific. Yeah, the property cost is just unbelievable. And I think, there, well, we were in a position where we became woofer hosts at one stage and we, we trained a young couple who were so good that they... We offered them a, a share farming arrangement. Now, they decided to move on for their own reasons in the end, but I think that's a good model for, for many farmers who've got huge areas of land. Um, sometimes they might even have a spare house on the property and, yeah. uh, and who have, you know, would like to train some young people. So yeah. there is hope. So how would you, if you were interested in doing this, how, what's the best way to go or to get started, I guess? Uh, as, a say, a city person who wants to go farming? Yeah, yeah. Oh, make a lot of money? Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you could also um, spend some time woofing on, on organic farms, organic or biodynamic farms, to get experience or find somebody who you can work with on a farm like I did when I was in my early 20s. Um, of course, I didn't get paid, but I got very well fed and, mm. and got free training one day a week for a year, which was absolutely worth a lot to me. Yeah. So everyone really has to find their own good. way. And, and the other thing is, Alex, that people can um, attend one of our introductory training days mm. uh, and do a lot of reading. There's plenty of reading material out there to... Just build up your general knowledge. And if you have a garden, then start gardening biodynamically. It's, it's just as applicable on a small garden as it is on a huge farm or mm. on, a, on a small holding. Sure. Is there, is there any course of study you would recommend? We, we were trying to set up a Certificate three in biodynamic agriculture at one stage but uh, couldn't get it off the ground because we had to partner with a registered training organisation and we, they had a limit, a, a minimum number of students we needed to get and we couldn't reach that minimum so it, it didn't get off the ground. Mm. No, there's no real course of study I'd recommend except the initial one-day training and attending... Once you join one of the Australian Demeter Biodynamic Groups, um, whether you're on a larger scale or whether you're a gardener, for instance, there are different groups to join. Um, they put out newsletters and information periodically. I publish a magazine myself on biodynamics called Biodynamic Growing. Um, and they run field days where you can visit biodynamic farms and just do a lot of reading. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, just for the people who are listening, I'm going to link to your website where they can obtain that. Those publications, I, I've got many here myself, and I can definitely recommend them. They're uh, very interesting. So, John, um, just to finish off now, 
Are there any final things that you wanted to uh, to let the audience know or to say that you think uh, are important? I think uh, Steiner said in 1924 that if this new method of agriculture didn't spread widely by the end of the 20th century, humanity would be in a terrible situation. So it's vitally important. <clears throat> the only person who really did that on a large scale uh, was Alex Podolinsky here in Australia. Although it is spreading steadily worldwide, we need a lot more, mm-hmm. a lot more to um, give humanity a future with food that actually nourishes them. So the more people who can find a way to start either gardening or farming biodynamically, the better. And if you can't actually be on a farm or you, you can't even garden biodynamically, at least seek out Demeter-certified products, products in the market because that's the best health insurance you can possibly have. Mm, absolutely, and I totally agree with that. Um, the way we eat, uh, the way we interact is, is a huge part of the way we interact with the world and, and what we eat is absolutely reflected in how we feel, I think. That's an absolute reality. Definitely. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for coming on the show, John. This was fascinating. It's been a Um, pleasure, Alex. I'm going to link to your website, as I said, and some other publications that I think are interesting. Uh, Link to the Biodynamic Agricultural Association of Australia's website, and which also includes the Biodynamic Growers Association, which is for smallholders and gardens, gardeners, Mm -hmm. and the Biodynamic Research Institute website would be useful too. Sure. Uh, just quickly, are there any publications you'd recommend for people that are just starting? Well, it's hard for me to be objective, but you can buy all 28 back copies of Biodynamic Growing magazine for $85 from our website, www.bdgrowing.com. There's a huge amount of information and articles on farms I've visited there. Um, also, any of Alex Podolinsky's works, which are also available through that website. Um, one that people could start with, perhaps, is Biodynamics Agriculture of the Future, which is a, a very good overview by Alex Podolinsky. Sure. Okay, John, this has been excellent. Um, actually, I wouldn't mind having you on again, because we do have a number of amateur gardeners who are, who are after some practical tips. Maybe we can leave that for another time. Okay, John, thanks again and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye.